The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is an honor for me to welcome Ms. Judy Juanita. She is a poet, novelist, and playwright. She is the author of Virgin Soul and De Facto Feminism. She is a writing teacher at Laney College in Oakland, California, and a social justice advocate. In 1968, while attending San Francisco State, Ms. Juanita joined the Black Panther Party, served as one of several editors-in-chief of the Black Panther, the newspaper of the party. I heard a lecture that she gave at the Berkeley Food Institute about hunger, government, and charitable giving. And recently, at a documentary film festival, I saw a film titled Dope is Death about the Black Panther's role in setting up acupuncture clinics to treat addiction successfully. And I thought it would be a good idea to reflect on the Black Panther Party, what they did, and where we might be going in the future for justice. Ms. Juanita, welcome. Thank you, and good afternoon to you. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. I so enjoyed the presentation that you gave at the Berkeley Food Institute because it was framed around this idea of food hunger, which we now give it a a glossed-over name called food insecurity, but it's still hunger, the government, and charitable giving. And I sense that perhaps we see this world of hunger through a similar lens, and that is that charity is only a stopgap program, but it seems as if we have institutionalized it. And I was wondering if you could speak in particular to the free breakfast program that the Black Panthers established to well-nourish young, poor children. Yeah, yes. I participated in the program when I was a college senior and a college graduate at San Francisco State University. And it was really very simple. We got donations from merchants, local stores, supermarkets for breakfast ingredients. We set up at a church in West Oakland, right outside of downtown Oakland, and fed the neighborhood children. So this free Breakfast for Children program was one among maybe 70, 72 community social programs that the Black Panther Party created. And, and they were, yes. Well, I was just going to say the statistics I have show that by the end of 1969, the breakfast program was serving 20,000 school-aged children yeah. in 19 cities yes, around I've, the country. Yes, I've heard those statistics too. Yeah, right. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? So it all started from a church in Oakland called St. Augustine's Church. Father Neal, who we call the Panther priest, who was a very receptive priest who actually became part of Desmond Tutu's staff. Father Neal and Ruth Beckford, who was a renowned dance teacher, taught many, many generations of students African dance. They were parishioners at this church, and they saw the need for this, 
and they joined together with the Panther Party. Ms. Beckford and Father Neal got the health permits. They went through all those steps to get it officially set up through the Board of Health of Alameda County. And we Panthers came in and we manned it. We did the, the grunt work. We cooked the food. <laughs> I'm laughing because oftentimes, you know, the children would complain. There's some, there's some eggshells in my scrambled eggs <laughs> or what have you. But so we did that. And again, that was just one of many programs. And I remember the programs getting set up very informally in many instances. Like, for instance, some guys came to some people. They may have, as I remember, guys with probably a combination of men and women came to Bobby and said, people can't visit their relatives in prison. And Bobby said, well, set up a, you know, like a Greyhound bus type operation to get them there. And go set it up and it'll meet, you know, once a week or once a month in the community and we'll take them there. That kind of thing. People would go out and set it up. So we were all like teenagers, 20, 21. We were all young people. And we just used all that youthful energy and got out and did it. So the Breakfast for Children program was the same thing. The only thing was that the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover targeted the uh, breakfast program. Hoover felt and said very specifically, let me find it in my notes, that he went after the Breakfast for Children program because he said, first of all, he, he sent out a memo to all FBI officers in May of 1969, and he said the Breakfast for Children program promotes at least tacit support for the Black Panther Party among naive individuals. And what is more distressing, it provides the BPP with a ready audience composed of highly impressionable youth. Consequently, the Breakfast for Children program represents the best and most influential activity going for the Black Panther Party and as such is potentially the greatest threat to efforts by authorities to neutralize the Black Panther Party, and destroy what it stands for. So this is a memo that went out to all FBI officers. It's so interesting. So there, he targeted the breakfast program, targeted over and over. So even though the organizers were careful to consult with nutritionists and make sure the children got high-quality, balanced meals and make sure they had the necessary permits from the health and fire departments for the kitchens and halls where they were served meals, they became regular targets of local officials. And the children that were served were caught in the middle. Mm. Yeah, it seems yeah. so but, inhumane uh, to want to stop or get in the way of feeding hungry children, especially because at the time, I don't believe we had a free or reduced-price school breakfast program set up to meet the needs of those children. No, no, it was revolutionary. It was the first of its kind. And... After the Black Panther Party and its programs were summarily dismantled, the Breakfast for Children program did find new life and a new champion in the federal government. So we do know that President Harry Truman established the National School Lunch Act in 1946 to offer free or reduced-cost lunches to schools. That was lunches, but it wasn't until 1975 that the government formally added the school breakfast program 
to its offerings to support vulnerable children. Yeah, those are yes, a lot so, of children falling through the cracks in the interim. Yes, yes. In comparison to other advanced economies, the United States had high levels of hunger even during the first few years of the 21st century, due in part to greater inequality and relatively less spending on welfare. Hunger in the United States is made worse by fluctuating levels in inflation and recession. Mm. You know, that's when we have, like you said, this fancy that term, food insecurity. Right. You know, so, so the Panthers were addressing a real need in society. And it wasn't just for African-American children. It was for poor children. It's for people whose families were struggling. Exactly. The Black Panthers also set up screenings for sickle cell anemia. Yes. Oh, yes. Was we, it... were the, we were the original the models for the free health clinics. Yes. Wow. But when I think back of what I have learned in my history classes about the Black Panthers, probably my education mirrors that of many, and that is that the Black Panthers were seen as militant. They were seen as a terrorist threat because that's how J. Edgar Hoover wanted us to see them. But really, as you describe in your talk, in multiple talks, that the Black Panthers were food activists, they were cultural workers, and they were ultimately humane. Yes. Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, said at that time, there are millions of people who are living below subsistence. Welfare mothers, poor white people, Mexican-Americans, Chicano people, Latinos, and black people. So it was the Panthers were very inclusive of all and not just making this a black issue. Many people that I have met in the subsequent years after my youth, so to speak, did not understand this aspect of the Black Panthers. They thought it was black, black, black. And I would always have to disabuse them of that notion and tell them that the principles were to reach many people who were dispossessed, who were disadvantaged. Right. And the struggle continues, doesn't it? Surely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not surprised by that because it takes uh, not only decades, but it takes centuries to change societies. One of my favorite books that I've been reading over the past couple of years, I, I always select these 900-page books, which take <laughs> take me a long time to read, and but I'm absorbing history. It's called Reformations, and it has a longer subtitle, but it's by Carlos Ieri, E-I-R-E. But he's discussing how the breaking up of the hold of the Catholic Church was first, the death knell was first founded by Martin Luther, but then it took 200 years. That's why it's called Reformations. These churches, these Protestants, root word protest, these Protestants formed new religions and new centers of religious activity throughout Europe. That took 200 years, and it was the bloody establishment, but that's what it took to break the Catholic Church's hold on society from almost the Middle Ages. So our struggle as black people then certainly began before Emancipation Proclamation, but it has continued since then. And I've taught African-American literature, and I always teach it from a historical perspective, 
So we had achieved manumission or freedom in 1863 through 1865, but by even 1900, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois were debating how to handle, quote, quote, the Negro problem. In other words, how to handle people who've been freed and have no skills, no money, no savings, and are largely lacking literacy. How does the society deal with those people? So really today, even in our society, like you said before we opened the program, there are still these kinds of problems in our society, and people still want to handle the issue of high degrees of illiteracy, high degrees of unemployment, and the problems that accompany these things, robbery, higher rates of violence, higher rates of domestic violence, so forth. The way they want to handle it is to just goodbye, you know, off with your head. We don't need you anymore in the society. Let's eliminate you one way or the other. That's what many people feel are genocidal responses to these very real problems in a society, in a very, very wealthy society that is wealthy and the wealth is concentrated, as we know, in the top 1%. Right. I need to go back to the breakfast program because I still am struggling with this notion that feeding poor children would be seen as somehow a threat. Do you understand where that came from? Where the threat comes from? Yeah. Well, yes. If you keep your foot on someone's neck to keep them down, and they struggle and they catch you at a moment when your foot is not securely on their neck, you upset the balance. See, there's a balance in societies of, I mean, this is Marxism 101, you know, this is history 101. When you upset the balance in any way, then the people who have the most to lose, the landed gentry, you know, the corporate owners, of course they're going to resort to naked force or police force to combat that. So, yes, it's a threat when oppressed people revolt, even if they do it in in a way that seems to really be satisfying a basic need. Remember, the Panthers were a revolutionary organization. They were a revolutionary organization. They were about saying this is wrong and it needs to be changed. So when that threatens the hall, the seats of power, then the the people who are powerful have to do something about it. Again, Huey Newton said in To Die for the People, all these programs satisfy the deep needs of the community, but they are not solutions to our problems. That is why we call them survival programs, meaning survival pending revolution. We say that the survival program of the Black Panther Party is like the survival kit of a sailor stranded on a raft. It helps him to sustain himself until he can get completely out of that situation. 
So the survival programs are not answers or solutions, but they will help us to organize the community around a true analysis and understanding of their situation. When consciousness and understanding is raised to a high level, then the community will seize the time and deliver themselves from the boot of their oppressors, okay, that foot that's on the neck. If they have a need, we will serve their needs and attempt to get them to understand the true reasons why they are in need in such an incredibly rich land, Hmm. end quote. He said that in To Die for the People. So the Panthers were not, they weren't hiding. The Panthers were not going around with a mask. They were coming right out and saying, these are survival programs pending revolution. It was a revolutionary organization. Of course it had to be dismantled and corrupted internally, externally. Of course, of course. Mm. You know, the full force of the United States government was brought down on the Black Panther Party. That's represented by the killing of Fred Hampton and I can't remember, and Clark, his last name was Clark. Fred Hampton in, in his house in Chicago. Well, just straight up got to kill, kill these young people. Have to kill them. They're standing up for justice. We don't need justice in a country where injustice was really at the core, at the core. Okay. So it from 1776 to 1865, that's what it took to even begin to address the injustice of slavery. Right. That wasn't 100 years, but what, what is that? That's Yeah, decades long. 25, 65, right. 90 years. You know, right. That took some time. <laughs> Yeah. Even though the other countries, England, had abolished slavery in, I think, 1831. 1831. And it was abolished throughout the the Caribbean. Generally, the Brits gave up on the slavery there and the French. So yeah. this racism and oppression that's in the United States is very unique to the United States. Mm. Very unique. Well, let me take one break and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Judy Juanita. She is a poet, novelist, and playwright. She is a writing teacher at Laney College in Oakland, California, which is where the Black Panther Party originated. And she is a social justice advocate. We are talking specifically about the Black Panther Party and its role in providing a more just society trying to erase some of the negative images that we may have seen about the Black Panther Party. Ms. Juanita, I noticed, for example, that in some of the historical documents that I was going through, the majority of the members of the Black Panther Party were actually women. But in in media, we always saw images of strong Black men with guns. But really, women were the core of the party. Yes, we were. And we worked largely in the background. I so appreciate the behind-the-scenes workers in any social organization, in any organization that I've been a part of. And oftentimes they are women, often majority women, but they make the programs run. Without behind-the-scenes workers, the upfront speakers cannot get things done. So I totally 
love that. Yeah. And, um, and I know after many years of doing it and even watching my mother when I was a kid, my mother was the recording secretary of her church for like four decades. So watching her do that, I knew and I know that women are vital to all organizations and that they make them run. Mm. One of the many reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because with the COVID-19 threats, of course, we are seeing racial disparities exposed. Those of us who were paying attention saw those racial disparities and those injustices. But now with COVID-19, it's become a little bit more difficult to cover up. And in addition to that, there was a recent journal article about what happens to children when they are faced with hunger. And it's more than being uncomfortable and crying because your stomach hurts. We're talking about mental trauma from being hungry. So the psychological distress of food insecurity, in addition to the problems of being deemed by society as less than whole and having to struggle with the inequities of maybe not able to access health care. And then I think about the Black Panther Party's work. And I wonder, you know, if you were in charge, what would you do in terms of let's envision a more socially just society? Borrowing on what you learned in your work with the Black Panther Party, what would be some of the first steps you would like us all to be thinking about? Well, I love the idea of community and communal food serving. And we, as a society, we do understand that, that it's vital and it's necessary, but we seem to have channeled it into two holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. So many people do what Glide Memorial Church here in San Francisco is noted for and serve the homeless or people who are food deprived. And many people who are middle class or upper class then make that a charitable choice to give up their holiday or to give up a part of it and go help and serve people. I think that's almost hypocritical to do it two days a year. And I think that if we had communal serving every day somewhere, communal breakfast, at which many different classes of people felt comfortable to come and sit down and eat together, break bread together. I think that might that might break down some barriers in addition to helping people get served because part of the problem with the breakfast programs as they were instituted is that they had the stigma of only being for the poor. And so even today, only 37% of eligible high school students in the city of San Francisco take advantage of the subsidized meal program. And what they're finding, I read an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, what they're finding is a lot of those 37% are immigrant children or, or foreign students. So there's not the stigma attached to them. But that doesn't mean that we don't still have food deserts in all kinds of communities that people are ashamed to admit. But if we had a communal type serving where people did this, where people do this, it would be different. It doesn't mean that someone would have to contribute like 
five days a week, you know, go and have breakfast in the community. No, but maybe if you did it once or twice a month and you put in some money towards it and they could kind of depend on that, there could be a lot of things going on, a lot of interaction. And even though I think maybe a lot of people perhaps would not want to be associated with it, you know, would not want to get their hands dirty and think of themselves as above the fray or whatever, I think a lot of people would respond to that. I think it's kind of criminal to limit the giving to Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah. You know, it makes it a spectacle. And I think that our society has really led us to be very hungry for that sense of community. And I think that what this COVID-19 forced separation has done is pulled back the curtain on just how important that is. And that while we try to have communication through computers, etc., it's really not enough. And your idea of having these communal meals where people are hearing or listening to each other's stories and maybe dispelling some of the myths that go along or that we've been taught through the media about individuals not being able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, maybe they didn't have boots to begin with by design. Well, Judy, we just have a minute left, and I want to let you give a message in closing. Well, I think that it's important to know that throughout our nation's history, African-American cooks have been applauded for their culinary skills. They've been restaurateurs, chefs, caterers, private family cooks, hired out cooks, street vendors. So I hope that an appreciation for that could be developed further and sanctioned even by some kind of community efforts so that people can really understand that what African-Americans did with food was, yes, indeed derived from the African cooking. And also, it helped people to overcome levels of food insecurity. It was very creative. And I think that if people knew that, then people would be banging down the doors to get to eat with food that Black people have created, because I think that's also part of the oppression. I'm a longtime reader of the New York Times, and for many, many years, I was very disturbed by their columns on cuisine, and which would not feature African-American cuisine. This was for years and years. It's changed now. The berries have begun to break down. But I would just be incensed that they wouldn't treat African-American cuisine as a very high-level cuisine. And in my address, as you may remember, I pointed out that many of the presidents of the United States came from the South and brought their cooks with them, sent their cooks to France to get training there, brought them back to the White House. Many of these cooks were enslaved. They sent them to France. They didn't leave. They came back to the White House and cooked. So anyway, I guess I'm really advocating for food justice, you know. Me too. Culinary justice. Let's have that. 
Well, with that great send-off, we'll have to close. But I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Judy Juanita, poet, novelist, and playwright, and former Black Panther Party member. I will make sure to provide links to your talk at the Berkeley Food Institute and to the archives of the Black Panther newspaper. Thank you so much for your time today. Good. Thank you.